Ever need something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. I just got a pair of barefoot shoes boots. They're different, man. They're they're wide and they're flat-soled, made of really high-quality leather, and it is a unique feel on the foot. I like them. They're unique because they give you the ability to feel the ground as you're out in the field, as most hunting boots have a thicker outsole, which disconnects you from the terrain. Use code BEAR at barefoot.store to receive 10% off your purchase. That's BEAR, B-E-A-R, foot.store, and use code BEAR. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. They said, Stuart, we've got it narrowed down. We've gone through about 600 other young men. Wow. We've narrowed it down to to four. And you're one of those four. I said, oh, well, cool. On this episode of the Bear Grease podcast, we're on part two of our look into the cultural impact of the book, Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. He drove the bus to the game where the coon hunters showed pop culture what was up and made us all proud. We'll talk with the childhood actor Stuart Peterson, who starred in the original 1974 Walt Disney movie, and learn how he got into acting and why he got out. His reason might surprise and challenge you. And he'll tell us if that mountain lion fighting the dog in the movie was real. We'll again talk with red-boned coon hound man Ronnie Smith, and we'll have a discussion with Dr. Sean Tuton about the key emphasis of the book which is that period of life when an adolescent boy becomes a man. And we'll talk about crying boys. If you haven't watched the original movie or read the book, you ought to check it out. But regardless, you're not going to want to miss this one. And the irony is that his lack of education actually makes him a better person. He can get his education from the woods itself. It's mythologized in the life of Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. This is what Teddy Roosevelt thought. That's why he went west and reinvented himself. He really wanted to, to reinvigorate his uh, masculinity in the practice of you know, frontier life. And that is really an yeah. American thing. It is. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. Makes me mad, folks like that getting such a fine hound. Sure as I'm alive, it'll wind up being as mean as they are. Billy and his grandfather are watching the Pritchard brothers ride away with a hound pup. Sure would like to bought it for you, Billy. I ain't much better off than your pa. Oh, shucks, you'll have your own hounds before long. I don't know, Grandpa. Sometimes I think God don't want me to have any. That's so? Why? Well, I've been asking him for dogs as long as I can remember. Nothing's happened yet. It could be that you ain't doing your fair share. Well, what do you mean? Well, if God was a mind to get your dogs as slick as cutting lard, he'd be doing all the work. That wouldn't be good for your character. I don't want character. 
I want dogs. You want dogs bad enough, Billy, you're gonna get dogs. But you want his help, you're gonna have to meet him halfway. In part one of this series, we introduced the American literary classic Where the Red Fern Grows, and we celebrated how the obscure pastime of raccoon hunting with hounds did a 360 slam dunk on mainstream culture. It's a wild case study because the book has sold over 6 million copies and has been mandatory reading in elementary schools from Seattle to Miami since the 1960s. The book was also made into two major motion pictures. And we already met the childhood actor Stuart Peterson, who played Billy Coleman in the original movie. We learned a ton about Woodrow Wilson Rawls, the author, and how he wrote the original manuscripts on brown paper bags. And late in his life, he finally got the book published. He only wrote two books, and both of them were after he served multiple prison terms in two states. Our interest in his criminal life wasn't to point fingers, but rather to paint on the canvas of redemption as we looked into the life of an ex-convict that became a beloved children's author and speaker, fist bump to Wilson Rawls. American literary classics are heavy hitters. They go deep, and you can't cover it all in a short time. I want to continue digging into the book with literary expert Professor Sean Tutan of the University of Arkansas. He's about to give us insight into why such an obscure place and lifestyle could have such general appeal and we'll learn something about novels. I read that, well, it was in the preface of this book, Claire Vanderpool, mm-hmm. and she spoke of that Wilson Rawls clearly established a deep sense of place. Why is place so significant if you've never been there? Because most people that read this book have never lived in the Ozarks. Oh. Why do we Why do we like that? Well, this goes back to actually, actually the history of the novel itself. And the rise of the novels were written as early, I mean, in our European tradition, as early as 1605 with, with uh, Cervantes wrote Don Quixote. Robinson Crusoe, Right, by Daniel Defoe was written in 1719. Both of those novels, you think about that. What what drew what draws readers in the? Why are they timeless classics still today? We make movies about Robinson Crusoe. It's the difference, right? It's the unusual life being offered to us, and we learn as we as we encounter something utterly beyond our world. And that's the reason why we call it the novel itself. It means something that's new, right? So wow. this the novel emerged during the. Uh, so these were the first novels that humans ever wrote. Some say there are earlier novels in China, but in, in Europe, this is some of the first novels. Okay, in the 1600s. Yeah, during the Industrial Revolution in England, when people had the division of labor grow, where they wouldn't really know about the other lives people had. You'd, you wouldn't work in the same place anymore. Yeah. And it alienated labor, and people uh, were dying to know how other people live, right? Mm. And so they saw the novel take off in that moment because people would finally get a window into the daily life of someone living in a... Completely different yes, than them. Yes, So the whole point of why place is so significant is you, if you've never been there, that is the point, is that yeah. you've never been there. Yeah. And so if you can really dive in and see the rootedness of this human in that place... That's the beauty of it. See, that, that wouldn't yeah. have been intuitive to me. If you think about it, the introduction of the novel was probably as powerful a moment for humanity as the introduction of the internet, maybe even more powerful. The idea that made-up stories, written as words on a page that could be read anywhere and could create an out-of-body experience for the reader who'd been trapped in their own mind and world their whole life, was a wild concept. They didn't have televisions, radio, or video games. Imagine a world with no fiction books. I don't think I've realized how much identity and instruction we get from novels that have impacted our culture. Even if you're not a reader, your life has been influenced by fiction writing. In Professor Tutan's book called Native American Literature, he said this, In reading, we enter a world where actual people or characters relate experiences perhaps extremely different from our own. Through that process, we may come to understand or even share some views or values of another. In literature is the power to transform. End of quote. Professor Tutan, part of the book that Wilson Rawls, I think, did such a great job of showing 
just a window into Billy Coleman's life was mm-hmm. when he went to Tahlequah. Mm-hmm. He traveled 30-something miles upriver from where he lived, and he went to the big city of Tahlequah, mm-hmm. Oklahoma, which is a real city, and it is not a big city at all. Mm-hmm. It says that there were 800 people in the city of Tahlequah, which to him was this massive place. And there's a series of things that happen that it's just such a powerful literary mechanism because by showing us the city mm-hmm. and Billy's response to it, yes. we see his world. Yes. And one of the things that happens is he, he walks in front of down an old downtown street where there's shops and stores and big glass windows, and he stops in front of a window, and he sees, for the first time, the full reflection of himself in a window. And he just kind of becomes a little bit self-conscious about that. I mean, where did Wilson Rawls come up with this? I mean, that is such a powerful moment there because you just think, holy cow, these people were so poor. They didn't have even have a mirror in their home. <laughs> it's also humorous. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's, it's a genius passage. You know, <laughs> excellent, right? Because yeah. the way that works is a piece of irony in literary theory. That'd be irony. What happens is we are drawn into, into Billy's world so seamlessly. They were not really aware of it. We get a little description of him, but it's a literary device to put something in front of a mirror. And you're not going to have a mirror, you know, in a frontier kind of home like that. When he finally sees himself, we're kind of jarred by this. Yeah. You know, and especially the ladies who are on the sidewalk, we see that he's wild, right? Yeah. Which is, again, like I was talking about wilderness and the notion of being uncivilized, you know, in a good way, right? You're also yeah. innocent and you're uncontaminated by society or town. Yeah. Right? And that yeah. becomes clear when, when he walks along very politely and runs into the, the kids from the school. That school is a two-story schoolhouse. It's got a fire escape that they're, they're playing down, going down the tube. So it's a, it's a big school. Yeah. And they're not nice to him. Yeah. And and he doesn't care. He shrugs it off, you know? What what do they? What slang derogatory term do they use when they see him? They called him a hillbilly. <laughs> oh, cut through the heart. They Boom. called him a hillbilly. <laughs> you know? What's interesting to me about that is that these were these were kids from Tahlequah yeah. who were rural kids by every estimation anywhere in the world. Yes. These, quote, city kids from Tahlequah would have been viewed by anybody outside uh-huh. of this region as uh-huh. hillbillies themselves. Uh-huh. They were familiar with that term and in a derogatory uh-huh. way, obviously, because uh-huh. the way they used it. Yeah. And then they see a real hillbilly yeah. in their yeah. mind and they're like, you hillbilly? Yeah. And I, and I love that term. I, 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 to me, it's a term of endearment now. Yeah. But, uh, oh, it, it irked Billy, man. Hey, what we got here? He's got a stack of dogs. How come? Is it a dog business? Yeah. These dogs belong to a rich millionaire and he's holding for dog ransom. Yeah. This is the classic scene where Billy Coleman fights the city kids. Mm. So in the movie, they didn't use the word hillbilly, but Wilson Rawls did in the book. I would have probably been offended if Walt Disney had said it. At some point, I'm going to dive into the deeper meaning of the term because it's different than some of the other descriptors used to define rural people. But in my book, it's got a touch of nobility. And it sure was a fast way to tick off Billy Coleman, which was not something you wanted to do. I had some advice that I would have given to Wilson Rawls, but let's see what Dr. Tutan thinks. And we'll cut right to the heart of what this book is about. A boy becoming a man. As I read this book and looking at it from a literary perspective, I'm amazed at the amount of stuff that's going on that's really intriguing. Mm-hmm. From the dogs fighting with the, the city kids to the, the Pritchards to winning the championship coon hunt to the dogs dying and a red fern popping up at the end. I mean, it's just like, it just stacked mm-hmm. with these little subplots. If you would have told me that, I would have advised Wilson Rawls, well, buddy, you might be getting a little too complex. This is just weaving people in and out of so many ups and downs. You know, you may be, you may want to simplify this a little bit. How did he pull that off? Or is there, and obviously it's, that would have been terrible advice. Is it common to have that many ups and downs that weave into a, to a story? You can map a novel, you know, and, and scholars have done this. And, and a good writer, you can get books on how to write a novel and they'll tell you how to map it out. 
often if you read a novel and you put it down, it doesn't keep your interest, it's because they didn't honor that, the continuum in the novel. A novel has to have a crisis action and a falling action. Mm. That means you have to have conflict, and usually that conflict occurs somewhere in the middle, and then you have maybe one more minor conflict, and then everything's resolved. And then the other point is that characters have to can be flat or round. If they're flat, it means they're just um, there's people walk in and out like the sheriff, and okay. you'll never see again. Uh, but a round character is a character that has to grow. So by the end of the novel, they're changed. There's something different about them. At any rate, when you map this novel, it fits perfectly to that crisis action. You got certainly you got you got the Pritchards, you know, the terrible death. Then you have the competition, and then of course you have the cougar. But the way that the novel ends in a beautiful resolution, if you will, is is the dogs buried on the hillside. Is that kind of what makes it what it is? The the resolution at the end that it's like a bitter pill to swallow, but also yeah. really redemptive. Yeah, yeah. And his father even tells him right here at the end. It's, it's not, he's, Bill, Papa tried, Billy, he said, I wouldn't think too much about this if I were you. It's not good to hurt like that. I believe I'd just try to forget it. Besides, you still have little Anne. That's advice from a man to another incipient man. You know, he's going to become a man soon. This novel's so full of tears. I mean, Billy cries at any moment. He cries all the time. All the time. I thought that was and a little unusual. I, did, I thought so too. But as a, as a writer, I think Wilson Rawls is trying to make it clear there's a contrast, you know, between what a man, how a man experiences emotions and deals with loss from how a boy experiences emotions, deals with loss. Hmm. When his father says, it's, this is not good for you, you shouldn't do that, it's kind of a bitter, like you say, bittersweet, right? His father's saying, like my father would tell me, you can't cry like that. Yeah. So that, that's another aspect of this novel that's very, uh, like I said, I, I found it a little, I'd have to say, if there's a critique in the novel, maybe a little overdone. On the crying. Yeah. I had the exact same thought. I thought, again, he's crying again, man. Yeah, he was crying at stuff that I wouldn't have thought a kid would have cried at. But yeah. I, I cried my fair share as a kid, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think I would have been known as like a crier. Mm-hmm. But I did know some people that were, mm-hmm. quote, criers. Mm-hmm. I look back at a period in a boy's life when mm-hmm. he would be a few steps away from tears at any moment. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty, that is a really vulnerable, beautiful, unique period of a man, you know, what will become a man mm-hmm. of a man's life. And that's kind of the whole point of this book. Mm-hmm. I, I think Wilson Rawls was just like trying to pound it home. Mm-hmm. This is a boy. He acts mm-hmm. like a man. He does things that a man would do, mm-hmm. but this is a boy. As a father, it's painful to watch, you know. And I remember my father telling me, and he was kind of rough about it. He'd say, suck yeah. that lip in. Yeah. You, know, not gonna, you can't cry. I'm a little more gentle with my kids, my sons. And yet, I'll tell them then, you know, there's, there's other ways to handle this, you know, because sometimes they'll cry out of frustration. I said, you got to take deep breaths and we'll make a plan. We're going to fix it, you know, and, and I try to be practical with them. But I think about the same thing about how dads handle boys crying. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it evokes something in us of like, boy, you better stop that because uh, yeah. that's not what a man does. And yeah. we're in this mentality and movement of bringing them to manhood. But yeah, it kind of made me wonder if I was too hard on my boys because you know they're going to grow out of it. Yeah. But in the moment, you're like, man, what if this guy's 25 years old and still crying? Yeah. And so you feel like you got to do something. (laughs) You better suck it up, kid. But then you see uh, Billy's dad probably manage him the way you would hope to be managed. Yeah. But I bet a real Ozark dad probably would have been a little rougher on him. Yeah. His mom's the one that gives him the whippings, though, too. Yeah. <laughs> she gets a switch, and she's, yeah, you know, yeah. she's whipped him before. It's always a question in, in fatherhood whether your son changes or gets beyond a difficult point in his life, and you think, was it because I said stop crying, or did you just grow out of it? You'll never know. Yeah, exactly. Because if you didn't say it, maybe he'd cry his whole life. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, you don't have to be a perfect father. You just got to be a present father, I think. Yeah, that's the important part. Yeah, and I never would have known the novel would be about fatherhood, but I'm also thinking about the father. You know, I have a feeling these good, incredible works of literature find us where we're at. Good writers find us where we're at, and that's exactly what old Wilson Rawls did. But why do a bunch of coon hunters like us care about literary mechanisms? If I am irrationally moved by something to the point of it impacting my life, I want to understand why. A fundamental and constant in our lives is media. And by media, I mean books, television, social media, podcasts, basically any type of human communication that isn't human to human. And don't say, I don't take in media, Clay, because you're listening to a podcast right now. Our lives are full of media in different forms. And it uses natural forms of human communication to draw us into being interested in something for better or worse. 
News agencies often use hype and hysteria to get people fired up. Podcasters use long-form conversation to make us feel like we're in the room. Television uses radical and often unrealistic circumstances to draw us into a captivating stupor. Sports engages with our love of competition and delivers a magnetic pull towards tribalism. The point is this. There are great powers at work, and if we are aware of ourselves and those powers, we can choose where to spend the energy of our life. I'm very interested in things that control us beyond our recognition. Personal awareness and responsibility is powerful medicine. Back to the central idea of this novel, which we've declared is a boy becoming a man. I think this issue of bringing boys into manhood is extremely relevant, as it seems manhood in our culture is up for grabs on its definition. Of all people to speak on the subject, I'd like to introduce my wife, Misty Newcomb. You would have heard her on The Render. She's an educator. She runs a private school. She's a mother of boys, and she has some insight into the development of young boys, which is the theme of our book. So I run, I run a private school, a K-12 private school. At the 7th to 12th grade level, we have a, a student population that's 73% male. We found that parents were bringing their young boys to us because of concerns about how modern Western culture treats young boys. Mm-hmm. And there was concerns about how they're being brought up to kind of loathe certain aspects of their just natural identity. Mm-hmm. And these young boys have a very unique biological developmental trajectory. And a lot of what we consider bad, not well behaved, not good, mm-hmm. is actually really normal. So there have actually even been studies where, and just so that you understand a little bit about academics, test scores, standardized test scores are not subjective at all. They That's the idea behind having a standardized test is that there's no human opinion grades at school are very subjective. And so a teacher's opinion matters on how they respond to essays, how they respond to participation points and things like that. Studies have shown that even though boys and girls, they've looked at a group of boys and girls and they don't have any difference on their standardized test scores, but the grades that teachers give them are different based off of whether they're a boy or girl. And I don't Mm. think teachers are sitting back there saying, you know, I don't like boys. I'm going to mark them off. Mm. I think that there's behaviors that boys naturally have that are less desirable in a traditional classroom. And that's a problem. Like that's that's a problem because it, it's communicating that these characteristics are bad. What you see inside of the Red Fern Groves, for example, you see Billy just kind of running wild, working with his hands and ha- having to think through complex situations with these, these coon dogs. And you know, there's not really a lot of experiences or environments that young boys have to develop those types of skills in modern society. So Billy's development, now he lacked on the academic side. We do know that. But but this idea of letting a boy be a boy yeah. is a good thing. And, and now that, I, I think we could get confused and we're not saying let a kid be rebellious and not do what you say. No, no. Billy didn't do that. No. His dad would have whooped him. But we're not saying tell all the little guys to sit still, put their paper sit still, exactly right. Sit still, never get right. dirty, never run around. Right. Never move rocks, never yeah. chase the cat. Yeah. Never, Instincts you know. are always something to be suppressed. Sometimes they should be suppressed. <laughs> really, there's a lot, like if you think about just the wildness of Billy's life and of his experience, that is extremely valuable. It's not the only thing that's valuable. It's not the only thing that should be emphasized, but there's an aspect of, of his upbringing that you as a young man look at and say, man, I'm glad I had parts of that, or I wish I had that. And you want it for your sons. You probably want it for your daughters too. Great. Hey, hey, let me say one more thing. I will say that we had two girls and then two boys, and everyone I ran into always told me, oh, your middle school years are going to be so hard with those girls. They're going to cry. They're going to be so emotional. No one, no one told me about middle school boys, and I remember being in absolute shock. More They're emotional criers. than any girl. So you think Wilson Rawls was really tapping into I something here? I think he here? was. I think he was. I mean, I'm just saying, it is. It will shock you how much boys cry. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think he was overplaying his hand at all. I think that he was tapping into. He was. He had to have been a crier. The conversation right now about the definition of manhood is very interesting. There's got to be an accurate definition of masculinity. 
And when it's right, it's healthy and productive in the life of the young man and everyone around him. Kind of like Billy Coleman. He respected his mother and father. He respected and took care of his little sisters. He worked hard. He told the truth. He admitted fault. He took responsibility. Pop culture has declared manhood as dangerous, incompetent, and self-focused, which I take offense at. But I think that many know that true manhood is defined by sacrifice and service to our family. It's about leading by example and living a governed life, a life guided by principles outside of our self-interest. Seems like it would be difficult for anyone to find fault with this. That's some good stuff. Here's a simple but meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. A digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pictures of all the things that they can't be there for, from family vacation to their grandkids' graduation. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code BEAR. That's A-U-R-A, frames.com, promo code BEAR. Terms and conditions apply. I've had a Helix Sleep mattress for over two years, and it is for sure the nicest mattress that I've ever slept on. I've slept much better in the last two years, been more comfortable than I have for my whole life, and that's true. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released Helix Elite Collection, a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for specific sleep positions and feel preferences. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash clay and use the code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet and won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. All right. If we were on a coon hunt, the dogs just struck a track in an unexpected direction, and we're going to head toward them. On the last episode, we met Stuart Peterson, the childhood actor who played Billy Coleman. We've already heard his voice on this episode. Ironically, Mr. Stewart has been on the show Meat Eater, and you can watch him on Netflix Season 9 when he guided Steve Rinella, Giannis Butelis, and Adam Weatherby on a mule deer hunt in Wyoming. That was him. The episode is titled Wyoming Mule Deer. His story is a winding road, and I want to try to connect the dots from Hollywood actor to backcountry guide. So, Mr. Stuart Peterson, you have no idea how neat it is for me to see you and how kind of shocking it was a couple of years ago when I learned that this boy in this movie that was real impacting to me guided my friend Steve Ranella in Wyoming for mule deer. And then to be here in Wyoming with you now is pretty neat. So my my main question I want to start off with is, how did you get into acting as a child? How did that start? Um, 
Well, it all really started with my mother's brother, who was in the motion picture production business. At some point, he had had the idea that he wanted to do a a film based on the book, Where the Red Fern Grows. And when he finally got the rights to do that, at that point in time, he was had begun kind of feeling out what you know how he was going to cast and who who he might cast. So he was the was he the he director? Was, he was the producer. The producer of the show. Now, where did he live? He lived in California at the time. Of course, growing up here, all I knew was ranching. So the film industry and even any aspirations for that never ever and still don't enter my mind. Mm-hmm. But when he got ready to do the film. He had had a a script put together and had taken it up to Wilson Rawls, the author of the book, Mm -hmm. who lived in Idaho Falls. And on his way up, he had kind of put out to somebody here in Coalfield, might have been a fourth grade teacher, because she was the one that actually made a a reference to someone in Coalfield that she thought might fit the part. Mm, Someone that wasn't you. Wasn't me. Uh, on my uncle's way back through, on his way back to California, he thought, well, I'll just stop in and see if I can't meet this other young man. As he came through, I happened to be at my grandparents' home, and this young man uh, shows up to be introduced to my uncle, who then took him into my grandpa's den and and, uh, proceeded to interview him slash let him read out of the script to see what he was going to be like. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I was just out messing around out there, you know, in the living room, probably talking to grandpa. Grandma, I don't know. Barefoot wearing overalls. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I never went barefoot in this country. This uh, That was really a new one for me. But mm. uh, in any case, when he got through with my uncle, uh, this friend of mine, why my uncle came out and he said, hey, Stuart, why don't you come in and read for me in the den? And I said, yeah, I, I'm okay. He says, it's not a big deal. He said, just come in and read a few. He says, I'm, you know, there's no pressure. I thought, okay, well. So he brings out a script and, and he thumbed through some pages and he said, well, here, why don't you just read the Billy Coleman's part here and read it as if you were going to, you know, you were going to say him to somebody. And, and I, I did a little bit of that. And it was kind of a half-hearted attempt when I did sure. it initially because I wasn't no, really interested. No acting training. No, no acting. Just no, read this. this. Just read this. And so I did. There was never an aspiration that sure. was a burn to say, God, please, Uncle Lyman, why don't you let me do this? I yeah. I just left it. I just did. I walked away from it as if it was just something that I had no interest, which I didn't. After this initial impromptu read-through with his uncle, Stewart's mother got a call a few weeks later asking if he would fly to Los Angeles to audition in front of the director, which he did. After that trip, he got a third call. And a few weeks later, they said, Stuart, we've got it narrowed down. We've gone through about 600 other young men. Wow. We've narrowed it down to to four. And you're one of those four. And so I said, oh, well, cool. But that's, again, as far as my thought process went. I just didn't have any inclination. Ended up uh, in the last phone call, they said, we'd like to do one last set of screen uh, tests. We'd like you to come to Tulsa, Oklahoma. We'll fly you. There will be these other three young men uh, down there. You know, I thought, ah, gosh, Little League, Little League football was going to be coming up in a few short weeks. Mm. Was this like a high-budget movie for 1974? You know, I thought it was high-budget because I'd never heard of those kind of numbers, but I think it was just under a million bucks. But but it was a high-quality production. It was a high-quality production. Like it, it was like a first-rate movie for yeah. 1974. Well, yeah, and and for the you know the people, that the director, he was very well-known. He had directed a lot of Disney films. The impression that I got as an adult as I've gone back and watched that movie, we just we gathered up the whole family and watched it just the other night. It was really <laughs> neat. The impression I got was that it was actually a really well put together film for the time and I was I, trying to make a connection of I, I think as I understood it uh, you know based on the casting of the other people that were fairly well known and and the interests that they had because as I went to Tulsa I did the screen test With, and there's four it's there's, now down to four, four guys four guys so they had us all there and, and uh, there was something that kind of clicked in me that said okay I became very competitive from the standpoint I wanted to win the part and I could have cared less whether I did the part after that I understand I started trying to pay attention to what they were trying to do to, to help coach me, maybe how to express myself in this scene or that. Uh, when it was all said and done, and, and my uncle was careful, he, he knew that with the production, the financials that they put into it, he needed to try to remove himself from from the decision-making process. He l- turned it over to the director and said, you know, you're, you're going to be the one uh, working with the, the young man, so you need to make the decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they came in and told me that I had the part, I... I didn't know quite how to feel, other than the mm. fact that I was 
already now starting to feel homesick mm. because they told me, they said, uh, my uncle came and says, well, Stuart, you've, you've earned a part. Uh, we're going to start here probably next week. And so for the next week, I'd like you to start toughening your feet up. So <laughs> you need to start going barefoot <laughs> That was one of my bit. questions was, how did you get such tough feet? It, uh, I didn't have tough feet uh, because, you know, and, and I tried. I, I truly tried. I took my shoes off. I went and tried to walk on the rocks, and I just never went barefoot around here. We, we yeah. just didn't. But there was somebody that worked, you know, that was a little more creative, thought out of the box. They said, hey, why don't we just put some duct tape on the bottom of his feet? Mm. And so if I had to run in the stubble, if I had to run on the on the gravel, they would just get the duct tape, and they'd, I'd go over there, and they'd just slam it I'll on, be done. layered on the bottom of my feet. Is there feet. anywhere in the movie where you can see that? I don't think so. I think it was all so quick, you know, with, oh. the, with the stride. That was my introduction. And I was thinking, I, I wanted to be home so bad. I, I really didn't want to be out there doing the film. Mm. You know, and, and of course, mom and dad, dad was in the middle of the in this in the hay and and mom had five other kids at home that she was busy with so she just basically assumed that uncle my uncle Lyman was going to be and he did he took he watched over me but I thought it was for me it was it was kind of a, a chance to be independent it was my first experience ever they gave me a per diem for the week mm. and I remember my they brought a little manila envelope to me and it had cash and it was like eighty eight dollars for the week mm. and that's what I was to use for my meals and of course, at that age, I, I, I don't need to eat that much. Yeah, that's quite a bit of money. That, that was a lot of money for, for a 13-year-old. So there was actually a real Billy Coleman story going on inside the set of the Billy Coleman story. Yeah, yeah, because I, <laughs> I just wasn't used to that. Being raised on the ranch, we never saw that kind of well, money. Well, just responsibility of a yeah. young man with money and stuff. Yeah. So how long a period, how long did it, it took, take to shoot the It film? was two months filming time. Is that all? Yeah, it was two months. Okay. Took two months to film, and then the production, it came out in the spring with the premiere. Where was the movie actually shot? The movie was actually filmed in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, within miles of, of the, the old homestead and the, and the same places that Wilson Rawls roamed as a, as a young boy. It's interesting to get a behind-the-scenes look at how all this went down, and we'll continue to see the parallels between Mr. Stewart's real life and Billy Coleman. In the last episode, we talked about some Redbone Coonhounds, which played a significant part in the book and movie. We're coon hunters, so this kind of stuff is interesting. Here's what Mr. Stewart had to say about the actual hounds in the movie. And how about that dang mountain lion scene, man? I need some answers. We had, uh, for that film, because of the age groups, there were 13 dogs, you know, because they had the pups, and then they had the half-growns, and then they had the adults, hmm. dogs. 13 different 13 dogs. 13 different dogs, because you consider the two-month period of time that we filmed, that you see them as pups, and then you see them as the half-growns, and then you see them as, a, as adults. Yep. But they also, they had some, when they were doing the scene where the mountain lion, where he's, you know, coming back with the dogs for the first time, he's nestled down for the night there, and that mountain lion comes in. When they had those dogs, uh, those older dogs going against, they had a they had a tame one and they had a, a wild mountain lion, and that the wild one they had a cable tied to a collar on that cat, mm. the cable you couldn't see. I was able to watch those scenes that night as they were filming it because it was at night, and I was just enthralled by how those dogs would go in there and you know keep that cat at bay. But they they had a few different dogs because there were a few dogs that they'd send in and they got smacked and and they'd cut yiping off camera and they'd have to send another one in wow so so i wanted to ask you about that because that wouldn't fly today no you know to have a and when i watched it just (laughs) as an adult and and now that we see all this uh animation and everything in hollywood that has to do with animals a lot of it is fake and computer animated when i watched that last week i was like that is for real those are red bone hounds baying a real live mountain lion The winning of the Gold Cup brought me and my dogs even closer than before. We became an inseparable team. And although I'd always known their love for me was great, I never realized how deep it went until the night of their greatest sacrifice as we hunted together in the Cyclone Timber Country. What do you see up there? I 
Do you think the Hollywood world would frown on a real mountain lion and a dog fighting today? Clearly in 1974, this wasn't an issue. If we're talking about historical revision, which is taking today's value system and placing it in a different time, this brings up some interesting questions about what has changed. But we're in the weeds, boys, and we got to get up out of here, and we'll do it by talking to Mr. Ronnie Smith. He was the Redbone Man from Arkansas we went hunting with on the last episode. And his grandson bet me $52 that there was a coon in a tree, but it was a den tree. Complicated situation. Mr. Ronnie has some information on the real hounds used in the movie. I've always wondered if those were just Hollywood dogs or real coon dogs. So... You have some intel on mm-hmm. the dogs that were in the yeah. movie. So yeah. there, there are two movies that were made. What do you know about those dogs that were in the movie? Well, at, at the time, I was a, a young fella in the 70s, not 74. You know, I, I graduated high school in 74. Okay. Uh, so uh, uh, the movie came out, and it was no big deal, really, but we went and we watched it, of course. Uh, Did you watch it in the movie theater? Uh, Do you remember? Uh, yeah, it had been at the, there's one in the town of Rogers up there. It's called The Victory. And it's open for plays now. It's not open for the movie pictures. But I'll be there. but uh, the original dogs, and they were local dogs in Tahlequah, the, the owner of the male dog was Glenn Davis. Hmm. Now, and, and I, I didn't know Glenn personally, but I've been in this uh, Redbone Association since 1980. So it's okay. a good, good while, you know. And he had the male dog, and he called that dog Ramblin' Red. The dog that they called Dan was Ramblin', Ramblin Red. Ramblin' Red. Just Ramblin' Red. That's all I'll it was. Darn. And Glenn got paid to use his dog. Yeah. He got $500. They could have probably got the dog and some feed along with that if they had wanted in 1974. <laughs> yeah. That's a landslide, 500 bucks, you know. Now, are you saying that's a lot? That was a lot okay. of money in 1974. That was five hundred. Now, was Ramblin' Red a good coon dog? The local fellas, and I've talked to a couple of them recently since you and I spoke, one of the fellas hunted with the dog quite regularly. He said he was sure enough a top-notch hound. Really? Mystery solved. Quote, sure enough a top-notch hound means a lot coming from Mr. Ronnie. Now that we've got the dog situation squared away, let's talk to Mr. Stewart. I want to know how he pulled off being such a great actor with no experience or training. So had you, at age 13, had you read the book? I had not. They encouraged me to, but, you know, I was never an avid reader. I I just as soon been uh, outdoors. It's not like I was, again, so uh, interested in trying to to become Billy Coleman that uh, I was living my own life of the outdoors, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mr. Stewart, I, what's so unique about that movie, and I, I I said this before I knew you or knew that I would ever know you, it's what a good actor you were. <laughs> I mean, th- that was pretty, because there's all, you know, all of us have watched movies where there's a kid actor and they're kind of the, the weak link of the thing. In that movie, man, you just carried it so well and were such a natural actor. Like, how were you able to pull that off? Well, and see, in my mind, when people, I've had people tell me that before, I'm still saying, are, are you sure? Uh, because, <laughs> and I was telling Steve this the other day, is when Steve Rinella called me, I told him, I says, I, I really didn't know that I was acting. I, I think I was maybe reliving a lot of what I, who I am. Right. I honestly don't know, other than I believe that uh, a greater power, which I, I firmly believe in God, was how I was able to do what I did mm-hmm. unknowingly because it wasn't something that I, I thought about, okay, I need to do this this way or that way. I did it the way I felt. And I guess if that's that was, you know, they say, well, that was good acting. I'm thinking, well, I don't know if it was good acting or just portraying well, uh, what I, I, the emotion of I felt at that time. Well, I think what you just described is good acting. I mean, to, to be able to live a character because you're so familiar with that character. I mean, it was just one of those things that you didn't have to act like a country kid. You were, yep. and you the genuineness that you came across inside of it, even inside kind of the moral issues inside the story. I see that today inside of you sitting here talking to you. <laughs> character matters to you. Yep. And in that movie, that was such a strong theme of it. It really was. If I had to do a part that was different than that, that maybe wasn't me, I don't know that I could do it. Right. It's clear to see that character mattered to the real Stuart Peterson. 
character also mattered to the fiction character, Billy Coleman. And character mattered to the author, Wilson Rawls, who created this story. But what's ironic and redemptive is that in the last episode, we learned that Wilson Rawls served time in prison in his younger days for what we can pretty much say was a lack of character. And by the way, Mr. Wilson pleaded guilty to those charges, so it's unlikely he was wrongfully accused. My intent in speaking with Mr. Stewart was just to get a look behind that period of his life and to see how it affected him. I asked him what it was like going back home to Cokeville, Wyoming as a movie star. All through my the rest of my junior high and my high school years, I was very aware of the fact that uh, my competitors whether it was football or wrestling, they knew who I was. Mm. That was a little bit of a challenge for me because I, I've never forgotten the, the story of uh, we had a, a little tournament here in Cokeville. And a wrestling I, tournament. A wrestling tournament. And I had uh, the fellow who was in my weight, had just moved there, I guess from California, was supposed to be somewhat of a big deal. And when we got there, he'd sent one of his little buddies over and said, hey, uh, so-and-so wants, to, wants you to know that you're going to be counting lights which is a terminology used in wrestling to okay. be, you're going to be on your back, you know? <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, I'm not going to let that happen just because they think I'm a movie star that I should be, you know, some kind of a badge of honor if they can beat me. Right, you're kind of a target then. I, I, I became a little bit of a target, and I, okay. I kind of... Kept... I wouldn't have wanted to have fought you. <laughs> if you're anything like Billy Coleman yeah. from Tahlequah, Yeah, Obama. well... I just, I just didn't want that kind of a, you know, I didn't, I didn't want them to think just because I was in a film that they were going to be, I was going to be easy pickings. And it was just, it was, it was kind of a poetic justice for me because I was extremely nervous, but I was so excited when, you know, when, when it all said and done, you know, he was the one counting the lights instead of me. So <laughs> Billy I, Coleman won. <laughs> I won, you know, I, I just thought, well, you know, that's, uh, that's what I dealt with. So yeah. I, I thought a lot about that and it just kind of felt like it was. A little bit of a ball and chain in many ways because I never I wanted I never wanted to to, to be and, and receive the accolades because I've been in a film. I wanted accolades to come because of my efforts, like in my wrestling or my football. That's where mm-hmm. I wanted. And the movie would have been widespread enough. I mean, this this thing was released nationally. You probably had people recognizing you on the street. I mean, did we, they? We, they do, and, and and even today, it, uh, as I get, you know, even. Losing my hair a little bit, and you know, this many years down the road. Really, you still have people that recognize. Oh yeah. Somebody that might have recognized Mr. Stewart was Mr. Ronnie. Ronnie was in the target audience for the 1974 release of this film. However, you might be surprised by his response to it. What year were you born? Fifty-six. Okay, so Wilson Rawls wrote the book Where the Red Fern Grows in 1961. Mm-hmm. Would you have read that book as a kid? I have read the book. I might have been, but now I'm an avid reader. Most folks that was up that I knew never read books in their life. They didn't go to school very much, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. But I, I've read a, a little bit of everything. Yeah. But I would have read it. I don't know that that book was readily available to me. I mean, your dad was... You had red bone hounds mm-hmm. at that time. We had a black when and you tan hound. Red it. Yes. Did you think much about it, or just it was it just normal? Was it, it was kind of like normal? You know, I mean, it was just like an everyday kid would have done here. Okay, so the book wasn't maybe that no, even that just, special. It was like life to us. <laughs> yeah. You know, really. Yeah. We literally made money picking up soda bottles. You know, for five cents deposits. You know, I mean, we really did. To to buy a hound puppy was. You know, it's just you life. were just like, what's the big deal? Yeah, we do that. That's <laughs> what we do. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting to the train station would have been a big deal for us more so than buying the puppies. You know. Yeah. yeah. Any any book you read, if you're a, a good reader, you and and you've had a good author, then you're you become part of that book in my mind. Yeah. Uh, you know, I read a western novel literally almost every night, one complete novel before I go to bed. Do you really? Yeah, um, uh, you know, Louis Lamore and Zane Gray, and I've been that kind of reader. I mean, I've read The Red Fern Grows, you know, I read the book, you know, probably a couple of times. Yeah. But it uh, wasn't that big a deal. Yeah. Because it was life in the hills. It truthfully yeah. was. Yeah. Which that's not far from here, Tahlequah. It's not very far. How far as a crow flies away from Tahlequah? I mean, 50 um, miles, 60 miles? Maybe. Yeah, it's it's an hour and, hour and 15, 20 minutes driving. Yeah. 
It was interesting for me to hear the impact of a movie on a person who was almost play-by-play living out a version of Billy Coleman's life. The literary mechanism of connecting a faraway place and a foreign lifestyle didn't hook Mr. Ronnie. The truth of it is this. Living in some version of hard times in the Ozarks wasn't that romantic of a life. It was just life. If you listen, this next section is the most impacting of my interview with Mr. Stewart. I asked him if he did any more movies, and his answer surprised me. So after the movie, did you do any more movies? I did. My uncle, who was into family valued movies, he we did about uh, three or four more. Okay. So how long did your acting career span in terms of years? You know, it, till about uh, nineteen, okay. twenty, and then and then uh, I had opportunity and have had a few other little, uh, I guess, uh, checkbacks with me, and, and I just haven't ever been compelled again to want to say, yeah, really. So so when something like that, like you've kind of got to fuel it by just like going and trying yeah. out for parts and taking the chance of flying somewhere for I mean yeah. I get I guess somebody in movies like stuff just comes to them but that's not well this true. Th- that's how everything for me came it all came to me it was never an aspiration or my saying I'm I want to do it I'm aggressively approach it when I got through with Pony Express Rider and I, I did I mention that one anyway there was one called Pony Express Rider I think that okay. was one of the last ones I did the director of that he later did a film called The Sackets it's a western and he wanted me to play one of the Sackett brothers. And uh, as I read the script, there were just some things that uh, were kind of a, went against the grain of my values. Mm-hmm. And that I, I told him, I said, I, I just really don't think this is a part for me as, as for my person. And I've always felt that way, that if you act and you are into the part, you're going to feel a lot of the same things that you would have in real life. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the case of this one, this, the Sacketts, you know, there were some things where they'd been out on the, the range for a while and then they came into town and, and it was party time. And, yeah. uh, you know, with the women and the alcohol. And I, I just said, that's just not me. Yeah. I can't portray that. Yeah. Even though it's acting, I, I can't do that. Yeah. And didn't want that to carry over in any way, shape, or form. And as a result, you know, once I got married, I understood exactly why I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to have to feel anything that would be contrary to what it should be, and, and that's uh, fidelity and, and commitment to my wife. Yeah. The the mind and body don't know the difference when you're faking it and when it's real. So was that was that a factor in closing down it your was. acting career? It, it was. I, I you love know. it, man. It's bizarre to me how media portrays human life. They often prey upon our extremes and in turn promote the normalization of those extremes. I think as a society, we could almost universally agree that infidelity degrades people and families. However, you can hardly watch a sitcom movie or program that doesn't portray it in a compelling way. Think about it and think about how bizarre that is. I absolutely love it that Mr. Stewart had the fortitude and wisdom at age 20 to see the potential pitfalls in a life as a Hollywood movie star and he intentionally navigated around it. Bros, that's some high-level stuff. This is the part of the Bear Grease podcast where we proclaim that having character is cool. Around here, you're not the cool kid because you do dumb stuff. You're the cool kid because you do wise stuff and having a value system that you live by. Nope, none of us are perfect. But you got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Cue the Aaron Tippin. Not really. Don't do it, Phil. Mr. Stewart truly was an up-and-coming Hollywood movie star. The road was paved before him. He received the Star of Tomorrow Award in the 1970s, and he purposefully walked away from a lucrative future. I love it. He went on to build custom homes, run an outfitting business called Crooked Sky Outfitters in Wyoming, and have a wonderful family. 
So you, after the age, or in the early 20s, you were done? I was done. Yeah, and you went off to have an outfitting business and build, build homes? Build custom homes. Do cu- you know, I do some rustic furniture. I, I like to be creative with my hands. I, I'm, I'm a, a person that likes the physical aspect of life and not merely a, an entertained part of life where, you know, a, a screen or, you know, some of that stuff. And I'm not saying... I'm just glad there's there's all types to make up the world because I wasn't born to be able to make things happen on a screen or, or that, you know, that kind of stuff. Let's get back with Professor Tuton for a final look at Wilson Rawls and some of the American ideals that shaped this book. I'm interested in why we are the way we are, and I'll reveal what the saddest part of the book was for me. Now, biographically, we know that Wilson Rawls did return. I mean, not just to go to prison in Oklahoma. <laughs> no, he did oh, return. He returned. Uh, I know that he returned because I know, I know some Cherokee folks over in Oklahoma that said uh, he came to their classroom back when they were kids. Wow. So he did come back. That makes me feel good. But yeah. even if he didn't, Clay, that land has been sanctified. It's sacred now. And there will always be some of him there in that land. The saddest part to me in the book, even more sad than the dog's dying, is that he had to move away. And that's that line that he never came back. Because what makes me pound the table is, I mean, I just love rural life mm-hmm. so much. People's connection to place. Mm-hmm. And just modern, the modern world just disintegrates that in so many ways. And it's just part of life. And the fact that Billy's, the winnings of his championship coon hunt were the thing that gave them the money to be able to move away mm-hmm. and never come. And in the book, they moved to Tulsa mm-hmm. uh, and presumably never come back. That's what got me, man. Yeah. This is the genius of, of literature is, is we continue to read it. And people say, well, why would you want to read that again? Well, some, some say that literature reads us. You know, when we read it, we read it. Mm-hmm. And every time we read it, especially if the years have gone by, uh, you read it differently. When I was a kid, what struck me most was, was the death of the dogs. But like you, uh, when I read this recently, when the wagon's packed up and they're going to leave... And he's looking back at that land one last time in that, that humble cabin where they worked so hard. Uh, it, it's a tearjerker in that moment. Yeah. It is, because you know he'll never be back. And all of us have that tie to home. And many would say that when, they dream, when we dream, we have a childhood home that's in our dreams. And it's always the same house. For, for me, it's always the same house, the same place. I know the smells, you know, and that's home. You know, what's wild, too, is that in the movie, you can actually see this cabin, you know, and, yeah. and where they lived. It's like, oh, man, that's... I want to go there. Back in those days, for those people that really lived in that kind of poverty, that kind of isolation, that wasn't a dream life. And so them going to town was like major upgrade in Mm -hmm. everything. So right now, when all of us live in cities and have these urbanized Mm -hmm. lives, we dream of going back to the country. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of have to switch it around. And where they were seemed like paradise. Yeah, And they were leaving to go to this thing that, we now all know, which yeah. is it's just interesting. Now, you know what makes a great, a great work of art in literature is, is irony, right? Mm-hmm. When something turns out to be the opposite of what we assume. And in this novel, when Billy finally goes to Tahlequah, which is the big city, he runs into some kids who are in school, and they're not nice to him. Is that city living? Is that what it means to get an education? Is, is Billy going to turn out like that? Yeah. You know? And the irony is that his lack of education actually makes him a better person that he, he can get his education from the woods itself. And that's very much an American theme, right, in our literature, is that the land itself can teach us something, mm. right? And we can get, you know, it's, it's mythologized in the life of Abraham Lincoln. You know, he, he learned to write with a piece of charcoal on a, on a wooden shovel by firelight in a cabin, you know? Mm-hmm. So we, we really value that kind of education that, um, that, can, that can occur in the woods mm-hmm. uh, without much technology or, or, or city living. There's even an assumption that city life will, uh, will weaken men. Mm-hmm. This is what Teddy Roosevelt thought. That's why he went west and reinvented himself. Yeah. You know, and started hunting, uh, wearing bearskin coats and Indian-looking clothes. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he got rid of his glasses. Uh-huh. You know, he mm-hmm. didn't... <laughs> yeah. He, want, he really wanted to, to reinvigorate his uh, masculinity in the practice of, you know, frontier life. And that is really an yeah. American thing. It is. You know, I'm, I'm trying to understand this rural American identity. Yeah. And, and what interests me is specifically where it's connected to hunting. And so that's why I ask you, is it really an American idea that we 
learn from the land. And, and you know, we, we've done series on Daniel Boone where we've seen that this idea of solitude in the wilderness is really an American idea. Like much of, much of the world prior to a couple hundred years ago, we were doing our very best to get away from wilderness because mm-hmm. wilderness is where you died. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's themes inside the Bible of wilderness being separation from God and all this. But then when we get here to what is now America, it was different. I guess I'm trying to understand even the, the, the European settlement of America in all its trouble and wild stuff mm-hmm. that happened. It was pretty unique to the world in that it was it was the last big block of the world that mm-hmm. was kind of modernized, if that's mm-hmm. an appropriate word. But a lot of for some unique stuff to happen in terms of the way we interacted with mm-hmm. the land. And, and and I'm also interested in how Native American culture deeply impacts kind of rural American culture today in mm-hmm. ways that we don't understand. And this book shows that strongly, too. Yeah, definitely. Know. When Europeans arrived here, they they invented the notion of the frontier. You think about it. I mean, it's probably obvious, but, you know, indigenous people didn't think of a front. They didn't have a frontier. This was just where they lived. Yeah. They didn't have a notion of wilderness either. They said, you know, the, there was nothing wild. I mean, they say, Luther Standing Bear, I've been reading him right now. He's a famous Sioux chief. And he said, uh, and he lived in a time before he even saw a white person on the plains. And he said, uh, it was not wild. It was tame because hmm. uh, they were so comfortable in, in their ancestral land. And it's taken centuries for Americans to become comfortable in this land. When the Puritans arrived here in 1622, they were in armor, breastplates, had muskets, and were you know armed and ready for that great threat of uh, a wall of forest. And beyond it, they knew nothing, uh, just that there were already stories of savage people that would kill you. Hmm. And they were absolutely terrified. And the first thing they wanted to do was clear path. I mean, get some of the trees down so they can get see. So can see we were talking about the fear of the dark, you know, it's taken Europeans in, in North America were absolutely terrified of a forest, hmm. you know. I mean, the imagination runs wild with, you know, indigenous people ready to kill you and scalp you. Absolutely terrified. And it took, like I said, centuries for people to move, Europeans to move into the woods and understandably adapt some of the ways of Native Americans who knew how to do it. And slowly became more American in that process. And that's something I didn't come up with that. Frederick Jackson Turner, the famous historian, Mm -hmm. said that long ago. He called that his frontier thesis. Hmm. And that's what makes us uniquely American. Yeah. If you look into the accounts on the frontier, as Europeans would call it, Native Americans and and frontier people, you know, white settlers were living side by side often. Yeah. They were neighbors, you know. But what's important, remember, is these people knew each other. They knew each other by name and would live within, you know, a gunshot of each other. Mm. Uh, that was the rule back then. Is you had to be up within a gun far enough so you could barely hear a gunshot. Mm. And so it's a process that we're very proud of, right? And still today, those are the values that uh, many of us, whether we're thinking of becoming a back to the lander or, you know, wanting to, you know, join the Boy Scouts and take hikes. All of that, we're kind of, in a healthy manner, we're, we're reenacting that, that frontier spirit. And sometimes it can be corny if we're not self-conscious of it mm-hmm. and reflective. Like, like you said a moment ago, we can romanticize tough living in a cabin. Something that, you know, like I mentioned my father, they had no running water. You know, they, uh, they had no electricity. Mm-hmm. And as a child, I romanticized that. But he was very happy to escape that life, you know, although never quite comfortable in a suit. <laughs> never. Yeah. And as soon as he retired, he was oddly regained his southern <laughs> accent. <laughs> Came back to him, huh? Yeah. I've never been back to the Ozarks. All I have left are my dreams and memories. But someday, if God is willing, I'd like to go back and walk again in the hills I knew as a boy. And I'd like to touch the heart that's carved in an old sycamore tree that says Dan and Ann. And I'll look for that sacred spot by the river where the red fern grows. Sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it, but whatever culture you're a part of, you've been impacted by its literature and stories. Going back into deep human history, since the beginning, stories have been inoculated with a live value system that is looking for hosts to carry it onward. It might be pertinent to ask which came first, the story or the value system. Do we create stories to carry values or did the values create the stories? A famous Native American author named Momaday said, quote, 
man tells stories in order to understand his experience and achieves the fullest realization of his humanity in literature. End of quote. Undoubtedly, the book Where the Red Fern Grows is one American classic that I can fully get behind, aside from Billy hunting them red bone hounds. The story is replete with character, and it also has a fundamental component of spirituality that I believe is an important and vital part of the human story. I still marvel at the widespread reach of a book about coon hunting. Surely Mr. Wilson tapped into an awareness of his own humanity and was truly gifted in his ability to connect us to place in such a seamless way. We all felt like we were there, regardless of our past background, geographic location, or economic status. The story is a humble human story. And therein lies a pattern for those of us interested in seeing our lifestyle of living close to the land persist through time. Nobody cares about coon hunting, but they're moved by people's stories and their connection to place. Thank you all so much for listening to Bear Grease. All the things we talk about on this podcast are deeply personal to me. And me and the team at Mediator work hard to bring you quality content every week. And I can't thank you enough for the support and for listening. Please do me a favor and share our podcast with friend and foe this week. Thanks to you guys, the demand for our Bear Grease hats is off the chart. It was sold out again. Our apologies. But we should have some new hats by May. And when they come in then, you better get them quick. But... We do have some of those Black Panther Believer hats on TheMeatEater.com right now. See you next week on The Rent. Ever need something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Here's a simple but meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. A digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pictures of all the things that they can't be there for, from family vacation to their grandkids' graduation. My parents are always asking for sports photos of my son who plays basketball. A lot of the games, they aren't able to make it. It comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame, so you can upload as many photos as you want, and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. I have an Aura frame, and so does Juju, my mom, and they love it. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. For a limited time, listeners can get $20 off their best-selling frame with code BEAR. That's A-U-R-A, frames.com, promo code BEAR. Terms and conditions apply.